so welcome to the third class on starting from within. I thought we'd start with any comments that you had from... It's coming in and out. It's cutting in and out. Is this better? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, so I thought we would um, start with any comments you had about the um, uh, practice with compassion, the intention of compassion over the last week, if anybody wanted to share anything. Not required, but if you did, yes, Daz. Well, so I thought last week would, uh, or the week before, would the self-worth. Uh, I thought the old practice we did last week was kind of like, you know, the worth of others or seeing like there's something in them or something mm-hmm. you know. Um, and when we did the class, I thought it was kind of like, it was good, but I thought when I would take it out in the world, it would be like, oh, I have this and you don't, and you know, it's kind of this. Oh, that they might set up some arrogance or conceit. Yeah, yeah. but I think that comment you had in the email about um, focus on the feeling and not the story, that really changed it from like, I don't need to think about it like as a, you know, I have this and you don't, yeah. but just like, oh, there's this feeling. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, that's really, I'm glad you noticed that because certainly the intention was not to set ourselves up as holders of some special knowledge or things that we had that others didn't. It was pretty much exactly like you said. And what, what did you find when you focused on the feeling? Did that affect your relationships or your interactions? Yeah, I mean, in it was what much way? easier yeah. to you know, be kinder or relate to somebody and open up, which yeah. for me is like the opening up is probably the biggest thing where I just tend to not. Yeah, it's not necessarily encouraged in our society, at least not from that place of worth. Yeah. Thank you. That's a really good insight. It's always been challenging for me to remain mindful when um, others, uh, when other people are in the mix. You know, I do really well on my cushion and around the house and stuff like that, but you add another person and I get very quickly and easily distracted. But this week, it was a focus of my practice or my awareness to when I was with somebody, it triggered me to, oh yeah, you know, to open up and sense into my heart and see what what I was feeling there. That I must admit that sensation, um, I'm not quite there yet. You know, I, I, there's something in the center of my chest, but I can't really quite describe it or anything. But, um, it really helped me deepen my practice in a way that I haven't been able to. Great. Thank you. All right. So let's go on then to, to the topic for tonight which is that we're now taking up actually the first of the three wise intentions, uh, which is the intention of 
renunciation. I'm just going to say that word. <laughs> Sometimes people have a reaction to it. There's a lot of confusion about this particular term because I don't think it's the greatest word for us in our culture. Um, so there, there can be various other translations of it, but yeah. I think maybe you just need to shout because it's it's not out most of the time. Is it? Maybe it's the battery on this. Okay. I don't have a volume on this. So what about if I speak like this? Is this relatively hearable? Okay. Okay. I will do my best if my... Okay. Great. Does that mean there won't be a recording for this session? Oh, no. This, this is just my phone. It picks everything up. In fact, it picks up this whole conversation that we've just had. <laughs> so the people listening online later can just... Uh, renounce their <coughs> requirement that the talk flow smoothly. So as I was saying, there is a lot of confusion around this word and around this intention. And so I especially like one teacher's definition of the intention of renunciation, which is the intention to no longer indulge your confusion. Oh. It's pretty good, isn't it? We all know we have it, right? We all know we have confusion. So what if we knew we had the intention that I will no longer indulge my confusion? So we're going to look at renunciation today, as it is in the teachings, and also how we might approach it as modern lay people, because there may be some difference there. Um, let's see. So the Pali word, the Pali word is uh, nikama, and... Um, as it's used in the suttas, the idea could be said to be turning away from sense desire. That's kind of the, a combination of the roots of the word and how it's used. Turning away from sense desire. More broadly, I think the implication is that we turn away from, for lack of a better word, worldly values and goals, and we instead pursue a life of practice. You know, that doesn't mean that we don't live in the world. We're all lay people. But are we living in the world for the purpose of our worldly goals, for the purpose of our career, for example? Or are we living for the purpose of our practice, but we have a career because we have to um, put food on the table? It's different, right? So this is uh, an important thing for us to explore as lay people. I also want to mention that the word, um, I asked some people from other traditions about this. And I have a friend who's a Tibetan teacher. And in case you wanted to know, the Tibetan word for renunciation is Nyejung. I don't know Tibetan, so I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But it's described in the Tibetan tradition this way. One understands so well the faults of even the best of samsaric life that it no longer arouses any attachment in one. So... Again, not that we don't live our lives. We got born, we're going to live. But what about living without attachment? Because we see that even the best life, we're still going to have problems. Do you know anybody who doesn't have any problems? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I like this way of wording it because it points out that it's a desire. It's the desire for freedom from the usual challenges of samsara. Could there be a way to live without those usual challenges being a source of suffering for us. 
That's really the idea of renunciation, which makes it pretty deep. Because it says we're going to let go of our tendency to dramatize and identify um, such that we suffer with the usual problems of life. Our usual solution, by the way, is based in confusion, which is that I'm going to solve all the problems of my life, and then I won't have them anymore. I'm going to get the right career. I'm going to get the right partner. I'm going to finally get the right house. I'm going to get the right dog. And then everything's going to be great. Um, You may not be so blunt about it. (laughs) But if we look, there's a part of us that secretly wishes that could happen. (laughs) And so spiritual life, a lot of spiritual life, is about retraining that desire in our heart to be something a little bit more realistic, um, which actually goes very deep and ends up bringing in kindness, generosity, all the qualities that are more supportive than the house, the car, etc. Okay, so let's see. The suttas, we need to talk about how this is presented in the original teachings. The suttas, as a caveat, were written by and preserved by monastics, and mostly male monastics, just so we know. So many of them have a householder saying the following phrase. This is repeated several times in various places. It is not easy, living at home, to practice the holy life, totally perfect, totally pure, like a polished shell. What if I were to go forth from the household life into homelessness? So this is the prompt for lay people to ordain, is that they decide that they can't live purely enough in the household life. They can't live perfectly pure like a polished shell. Some of you know that I went to Sri Lanka in November and to practice. And the first night when I arrived, uh, after a huge amount of travel, I stayed in a hotel on the beach, and I went out in the morning, uh, my first, you know, sunlit, breaking dawn, and I walked on the beach of the Indian Ocean, although, of course, it's all the same ocean, and I found this seashell. (laughs) And so um, I thought I'd pass it around as an example of a, you can see, especially on the inside where um, it's very smooth, You can get an image of what it's like to live a life that's perfectly pure, like a polished shell. To just pass this around, I'll pick it up at the end. We also have in the suttas this one from a layman named Tapusa. We lay people enjoy sensual pleasures, delight in sensual pleasures, take delight in sensual pleasures, and rejoice in sensual pleasures. Renunciation seems like a precipice. (laughs) And in contrast, later in the sutta, it says that the minds of monastics are said to launch out upon renunciation and become placid, settled, and liberated in it. So this sutta contrasts lay people and monastics by saying that all lay people delight in sensual pleasures and all monastics delight in renunciation. I would question whether there is such a one-to-one correspondence. Um, My view is that renunciation is for lay people too, but it looks different for us. It's probably a larger topic than we can cover in completeness today, but it's one of my favorite ones, so I'm going to do my really best. (laughs) But consider, after that that sutta, consider also this Dhammapada verse spoken by the Buddha. Even though well-adorned, which is us, we're well-adorned, 
and even though well adorned, if one lives at peace, calm, controlled, assured, and pure, then one is a Brahmin, a renunciate, a monastic. So even if one is a lay person, if one lives in, in a way that's peaceful, one is called a renunciant or a monastic. It's a very interesting contrast. So he's saying that this is an inner quality, actually. He's implying, I think, that lay people can take on uh, some of those same uh, intentions. So now here's some um, lay teachers talking about this. Bill Fransdahl. Renunciation is the capacity to let go of any desire which might cause suffering and hurt. Without being able to let go of a desire, there is no freedom. Fair enough. Why wouldn't you want to let go of desires that might lead to, to suffering and hurt? Of course we would want to let go of those. And that's what he says renunciation is. It also highlights that letting go doesn't mean getting rid of it necessarily but that we're no longer controlled by it. We, when those desires arise, we can let go of them and not go with them, you know, not be forced to just go with them. Joseph Goldstein calls renunciation non-addiction. I like that one a lot, non-addiction. So it points to it as being a mental quality, and that it's the, you know, we know what addiction is. It's when you've got to have it. And it's actually hurting you, but you've got to have it, so you're holding on to it. It's tragic, actually. And so if renunciation is non-addiction, sign me up. <laughs> sign me up. And so if we really take that more figuratively, any mental movement that's going to lead toward harm and suffering, such as negative self-talk, such as all the you know various things we might engage in, um, renouncing those is part of renunciation, not doing those. Okay, so what, you know, what is lay renunciation, then? What does that mean for us? I'd like to talk about some different dimensions of it. You don't have to do all of these dimensions, but just see uh, what resonates for you as I go over various areas of practice. This might include... So the first, maybe the broadest, is to value simplicity over complexity. Yeah? So very easy for us to start at that level, to be receptive to the ease that comes when there's less stimulation, and to be willing to actively create this by letting go of some of the busyness in our lives. That's often where people start. They think they're just getting their lives in order so they can do mindfulness meditation, but it's the first act of renunciation to decide, I'm going to spend half an hour a day meditating, which you would have otherwise spent watching TV, on the internet, whatever it is. Um, so we have our first act of renunciation to create that space for us to sit every day. There are other ways we can look towards simplicity. We can consider our physical possessions. How much is really sufficient? Do you have more than you need? Many of us, of course, have more than we need at a bare bones level, but what about having more than you mentally need? I have found that the amount of stuff that I have, if it's more than I really need, beyond some level, it's actually a mental burden to have that stuff. Even if I'm not using it, it's just sitting in the garage or whatever. Um, just somehow that it's there. It has a mental weight to it. And when I 
times when I've cleaned out the closet, it's like, oh, it feels so good. <laughs> I wasn't using any of the stuff in the closet, but knowing that it's not there, great. So we can, you know, it's worth really looking at your stuff and considering what's sufficient. And then also part of simplicity is to simplify our actions of body, speech, and mind. Slowing down. Being less busy. Our speech. More straightforward. More gentle. Simpler speech. Not simple like unintelligent. I mean, simple like it's our point is clear when we speak with people. We've all spoken with people who are complicated speakers. And it's uh, harder to listen to them. Simplicity of mind. Reducing our degree of complicated storytelling about the world. She did this. Why did she do that? Oh, I bet she's trying to do such and such. I wonder how I could convince her that you don't even know that that first assumption was true and you've already gone off <laughs> on some long story. And then this one, so that, that one's fairly straightforward, but the one that's a little harder, I think, is that simplicity of mind includes reducing the number of demands and complaints that we make about the world. The world just is as it is. Not that we never act to change it, but kind of how it is right now. How much of our mental activity is placing demands on the world or complaining about the world? And wouldn't it be simpler if we didn't do quite as much of that? Yeah, so it's contentment. The cultivation of contentment is very much related to renunciation. So we might just take an indiv a moment for individual reflection. Think about one specific way that you could reduce busyness in your life in the upcoming week in order to slow down and basically be simpler in your physical activities. Just consider for yourself if there's one thing that you could do to reduce busyness. And then the second reflection is what is one thing that you could do this week in order to reduce complication or increase simplicity in your relationships or your internal mental life? And if you want, you can write those down. All right, so that's, that's kind of one dimension of lay renunciation, is to cultivate simplicity of body, speech, and mind. A second dimension, if you're more into the investigation, is to study desire. Because in many ways, renunciation is letting go of the desires we have that are not helpful. We replace them with the wholesome desire to to do less, to let go. And so what is it? Why do we have so many desires? We actually are an endless stream of desires from the time we get up to the time we go to bed. And many of them are kind of innocent, like the desire to go get a drink of water, the desire to shift your position at the computer. Those are all little desires. Um, but the question is, 
what causes desire? How can I distinguish between a healthy desire and an unhealthy desire? You know, one that's leading towards suffering and entanglement, or one that's leading toward freedom or the development of good qualities. Do we have a clear idea of how we can understand and distinguish a healthy from an unhealthy desire when they arise? Because they arise all day from morning to evening. We get plenty of chances. This is not a difficult uh, field of practice to come in contact with. And that would be a whole class in and of itself to talk about uh, desire. Another one is to devote ourselves to, really to the internal renunciation, not just the external one. Letting go of things is good, I know, but letting go of views, mind states, and habitual patterns goes much deeper and is eventually needed in any practice of renunciation. And this is where lay people can do just as much as monastics. You know, we look at monastics externally, and they've let go, of course, of their home, of their choice about clothing, of their choice about food, of their relationships, of all kinds of things that are essentially external. And many of us say, not for me. But um, what about letting go of our habitual patterns, our views, our mind states? These things are actually more what cause suffering, and they are a realm that's, that's available to us as lay people. So as we start to look, I'll walk through the process a little bit, as we we start to look at how our minds work, we find a lot of behavior patterns, not all of them helpful. This is very normal. These are patterns that are developed out of ignorance. You know, the pattern that we tend to complain when we're driving. There are some people who just get in the car and they drive to their destination and there's no problem. And then there are those for whom driving is a horrible, stressful experience, and they're angry at all the other drivers, and they want this, and they can't get that. What's the difference between those two minds? I don't know. One person cultivated something that leads to that while they're driving, and the other person didn't. So you have to check. What are your mental habits? Where where are the ones where you get stuck? There are people who um, eating, eating a cookie is just eating a cookie. Someone offers them a plate of cookies, and they say, oh, thank you, and they take one, and they eat it, and they're done. Some people, a cookie is a huge drama. Oh, my God. Is it Buddhist to eat a cookie right now? Should I eat this cookie? What if I'm letting go of desire right now? You know, and it becomes very complicated. Is that your mental pattern? That's where you get hung up, is on food? You'll have to see for yourself. We have to study our own minds. So we find these weird patterns. And sometimes we find ones and we're like, what? (laughs) Where? Why why does my mind do that? It's like an entertainment to watch your mind go off on these things. So the good news is that patterns can be changed. They're karmic. We can change them. If they're leading to suffering, we can change them. Our minds are malleable. Not that it's necessarily easy, but it can be done. And a number of teachers talk about kind of the sequence that we go through. This may sound familiar. So at first, I'm just going to call these things patterns, the patterns of our mind. So at first, patterns run, and we don't even notice them. We have to behave that way because we have no awareness that this pattern is running. Then we start developing attention, 
And we have a sort of a painful period where we start to notice. We see the behavior as a pattern, but we don't have enough attention to really see any other options. So that's kind of an ouch. Then we begin to see other possibilities. We see that we have the option to not yell at that moment or not snap at someone, but we can't take them. That's the real ouch, (laughs) is when you have the moment where you realize, I would so much like to be kind to my sister when I see her. And you get there, and you still don't do it. (laughs) That's the hard part. But if you don't give up, if you don't give up, and you keep cultivating the intention, I'm going to be kind to this person when I see them, you will have a moment when you do. When your attention and your intention are stronger than that habit pattern that says to be unkind at that moment. You will have that moment, and you'll say, whoa, and that is a moment of liberation. That pattern has been cut, in a sense. It doesn't mean it's gone. The next time it might happen again, and you're like, ah. But don't worry. If you've cut it the first time, it is on the way out if you keep the attention up. I'm, I'm trying to instill faith in you. <laughs> so this is how it goes. Cutting patterns like this could be called liberation, right? We've become free from a mental habit that was leading to suffering. That's called cessation of suffering. It's the third noble truth. So what we have to do, the practice, is to create enough strength of awareness that our intention will rule the day, and that our habit pattern does not have enough. You know, it's weaker, weaker than the strength of attention that's meeting it. That's what we're cultivating. How do we do that? One possibility, this is a whole other Dharma talk, is to go into this, but quickly as summary, one possibility is to ground in the body. That's a very useful practice. Feel the feet on the ground, feel the... um, The chest area is often good, Uh, kind of the stature, the straightness of the spine, something that gives us some grounding in our physical being. That can keep the mind from just flying up out out into outer space. Another excellent way to strengthen attention is hinted at by what you were saying, Carol, is that Sometimes when we're in, often when we're in situations where a pattern is running, our attention kind of contracts and it gets small and we're just doing that little thing and then we come out later and we're like, whoa. (laughs) But if we cultivate an intention that is an attention, an awareness that is broad, um, we can, and then see activity arising within that broad awareness, this is really helpful. So for example, We can try it right now. Allow your awareness to expand to the walls of the room. You won't try to make a huge sky-like awareness, but just feel in your awareness that, that it's as large as the walls in the room. And now simultaneously, keep it there, simultaneously hear my voice. And if you're comfortable doing so, open your eyes and take a look at me. I am a process happening within... Uh, the walls of this room. You feel that broad awareness, and I'm not challenging you right now or anything, so it's pretty easy to keep that broad awareness and see me. Now consider if you could do that, even in a stressful situation. A broad awareness, and there's somebody in front of you who's challenging you. 
but they're a small piece of a bigger picture. It's really helpful. Cultivating that kind of awareness is what helps to start cutting these patterns, creating liberation in our mind from our mental habits. This is a lot of what the grind of practice is about in daily life, is seeing the patterns, because we don't see a lot of them, and then learning that skill of getting strong enough that it doesn't have control over us anymore. And then we have choices. A third way to uh, cut patterns, if you will, is to, once we start seeing our particular ones, our special little flavor of patterns, um, I mean, they're all greed, hatred, and delusion, right? But we have our own specific versions of those, is to create specific vows for yourself. Um, This is good to do once you develop some stability of attention and some clarity about what that pattern is. But then you create a vow that specifically addresses that pattern. And I want to share three that Philip Moffat um, came up with for himself. These are Philip Moffat's vows for internal renunciation. And they're, they're more general than just him, of course. You'll see when I read them. So he made it into a vow. I renounce being the star of my own movie. Does anybody feel like you're the star of your own movie some of the time? And it's, and everybody else is a supporting character, except that you're a supporting character in all of their movies, too. How does that work? So I renounce being the star of my own movie. <laughs> kind of a nice... We can be creative with these, right? This is another good one. I renounce judging the success of my life by how many of my desires are met. We do this a lot. We decide... My desires have not been met, therefore I'm a failure. Or my desires have been met, therefore I'm a success. Mm. But why am I not happy? (laughs) So I renounce judging the success of my life by how many of my desires are met. That helps us be much more present. It makes us realize that if our desires are not being met, it's not that there's something wrong with the universe. Just so often what we believe. Much more spaciousness. And I've saved the best for last. (laughs) I renounce my attachment to being right. Nobody knows that one, right? (laughs) Yeah. So these are these are serious renunciations. (laughs) That if you, I mean, if you take this on as a practice, it's actually. It doesn't say you're going to reject. You know, I I decide that I am always wrong. I don't think so. That's not actually going to work because then you're right about the fact that you're wrong. So you're still attached to being right. So what does it mean to renounce your attachment to being right? So these become explorations. Yeah. Um, Do these get replaced by something, or are they just gone? What do you mean? Uh, Like, you know, the desire one, you know, if you're not evaluating how successful you are based on that, is it replaced with something else, or is there just... Oh, yeah, well, the mind will try to do that, of course. Um, But the idea is that practicing with that um, will change our relationship to that tendency in our mind to judge the success of our life by how many desires are met. We'll change our relationship to that, and that will shift other relationships in the mind also. It's it's not an isolated process where you're just attacking that one little thing. And I also, also, when you ask that, what comes to mind is a Zen phrase which is that sickness and medicine heal each other. 
I love that phrase, sickness and medicine heal each other. So applying a vow of renunciation to a harmful desire, uh, they will heal each other in a sense. It's not that the renunciation becomes the, the truth that you replace your unwholesome desire with. Uh, we're not just we're not trying to do substitution therapy, but it's more transformation therapy, and they will both go away when they're no longer needed. You don't need that renunciation if you didn't have that desire, so it will go away also. That's a good question. I'm describing a process that's uh, very dynamic and very alive and is onward leading in our practice. Okay. Um, so with that introduction, I thought we would do some small groups now. And why don't you get in groups of mostly three, but if there is a group of two, that's okay. I don't want four, that's too many. So do that first and then I'll give you the questions. Okay, so the question is, and each person will share for a couple of minutes, Share a long-term pattern you have noticed in your mind, whatever you're comfortable with sharing. You don't have to share your deepest, darkest, strangest. Um, share a long-term pat- pattern that you have noticed in your mind. How has it changed over time, if at all? Okay. Are we coming back as a whole? Yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. yeah, we'll come back now. There was just the one question. So, um, but I didn't get to hear all of your answers. So <laughs> I'm curious if, um, I don't need to know all your mental patterns, but um, I am curious what you had found uh, about how they had changed over time or how you'd had any practice with them, or if you saw any themes uh, among the people in your group, anything like that. Yeah. Well, the mental pattern. I mean, I have so many. It's like we where to start. <laughs> that means you're very aware. <laughs> Folks who think they don't have as many haven't just haven't looked. Great. <laughs> <laughs> an awareness of mental pattern. Uh, but the one that I focus on right now is my obsession of wanting to buy a house, to own a house. I've, I've been a renter all my life, and I think yes. Um, the only way that the pattern has changed is that I've become much more aware of the the fact that it's the the only real problem is the desire. It's not that I need to own a house. It's it's just the wanting that that creates suffering. It creates some tension, um, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And and that at this stage in my life there are a lot of benefits in renting, that I'm fine where I am that we all are renting essentially anyway. And, you know, all it's all a rental. But, you know, it's like, it's my obsession and, and yearning for, for that. Yeah, I can understand that. Some of these. So far, I'm not able to drop it, though. Yeah, mm-hmm. and some of these patterns or, or desires um, just last for decades. It's amazing. Yeah. Thank you for, yeah. yeah, Enrique. Yeah, just, um, yeah, that was great, breaking up and having that, uh, that comment about our patterns. 
mine has been, as of like the last four years, actually since I've been in Santa Cruz, because it's, it's, it's so, it's a drastic change. Uh, moving here from another place, I lived here for 25 years. And um, so there was, this, there was a, a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress about this decision. And so, you know, it's not like um, I'm beginning my career, and like this, okay, this is the latter part of my career. Anyway, so it's just this obsession about well, what's going to happen, and um, if I made the right decision, and a lot of anxiety. And it got to the point where it was becoming very stressful and very, it was breaking me down physically, also mentally. Um, when you're so stressed out, you actually um, can't think clearly, and you make very poor decisions. So it was through just uh, speaking about it to family members, I, I started becoming really aware about this. And that's one of the reasons why I'm here, also. And I'm trying to pick up my practice again, meditating. But, um, and it's over and over again, it's this relentless voice that just, you know, is, is uh, projecting how things are going to be so bad for you because of this decision. And um, you really should have done this. And, and then it proves itself to be wrong, you know. Things are actually working well for me. But um, that's just been a pattern in my life, I think. Yeah, that you so have the anxiety pattern. something I think yeah. it's, it's going to be with me, you know, through the end of my day, but uh, I can be more aware about it. Yeah, you're starting to gain some of that strength of awareness where the awareness could be stronger than the anxiety sometimes. That's what I'm hearing. Is that the correct assessment? Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Thank you. So um, I've got a long-standing uh, habit of aversive tendencies. So walking into a room, that person looks weird, that person looks right. weird, whatever. What don't I like? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I've uh, begun doing a practice of uh, looking at for something I like in every person in the room, hmm. and it's. It just sounds so simple and basic, and it is simple and basic, and it, uh, I'm really experiencing quite a lot of delight in doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's actually one of the proximate causes of metta, is to see uh, the good qualities in another person. Yeah. So I'm not surprised However there's delight. Simple. You know, yeah. it's a pretty color sweater or yep. whatever. <laughs> Jack Cornfield tells a story, you may have heard it, of um, when he was newly ordained as a monk and he was, there's a requirement that you always, newer monastics have to bow to people who were ordained before them. It doesn't matter age, it's when you were ordained. And so, you know, he had ordained and there would be some, in his words, some Thai farmer <laughs> who had ordained one day before him who he knew was there because the food at the monastery was better and, you know, it wasn't really practicing. And, you know, he was a very idealistic young person, very bent on his practice. But he found that he, and of course he had to bow to all of them. So he found that what he started doing was, it wasn't as extreme, but he, he started doing what um, you mentioned of saying, well, this person has a lot of wrinkles on their face. They must, they must have seen a lot in their lifetime and weathered a lot or 
or that person just has pretty eyes, you know, very simple things. And he found that it just made it so transformed his way of being with the people at the monastery. Yeah, you may not recognize these simple practices that people have been pointing out as acts of renunciation. You probably didn't think of it that way, but they are. If you're acting to let go of a pattern of something in the mind that is bringing suffering to you, that is the intention of renunciation. I'm intending to let go of what causes suffering. You guys are all renouncing. <laughs> yeah. Um, one way I look at it is I look at the eight precepts and study the five precepts. Uh huh. So I just keep in mind uh, the, <coughs> the seven, speaking the food one, which I can't do. So the I sixth, yeah. That one. And then the third one is the adornment and the entertainment one, which is one I consider when I start my day. How, how will I adorn myself, or mm-hmm. will I watch the TV, or will I go to a movie? And then the, the, the last one is pretty easy because it's a simple bed. So that one I feel like I'm on top of. But in terms of my own personal life, uh, I'm not much of a renunciate, but I keep those two, mm-hmm. the eight precepts in mind. That's great. It's just nice to have a framework, right? Yeah. think about the, the five precepts as a really wonderful <coughs> way to make your life simpler. Yeah. Yeah, your life, if, if you just follow those five. Everything goes easier, doesn't it? Everything is easier. Yeah. Actually, renunciation and ethical conduct, I didn't have time to talk about that, but they're intimately linked. And thank you for pointing that out. If you've ever read the beginning part of the Metta Sutta, where it says, this is what should be done by those what, um, who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace, it then goes on to say a bunch of things that are basically about ethics, you know, and a lot of them are about simplicity. Um, and so there's this link between uh, letting go of complications and you know, poor behavior and, uh, and the practice of ethics. You had something, Rebecca. Uh, yeah, I was, um, the biggest thing that's been in my mind lately is sort of that staying in that present moment and in interacting with others, just really letting go of that desire to attach my own story to their intentions, to their actions, or what's behind what they're saying, mm. or, and to just let that go and, and be in the moment and sort of stand back and just be aware. Yeah, so it doesn't suddenly relate to your story somehow. It's a habit that we have that's a tricky one. I've seen this one in myself, too, in that, um, you know, we want to have a conversation with this person, and so we want to be able to say, oh, yeah, I know about that, or I remember a time when that happened to me, too. But basically what you've done is turn it toward you. (laughs) And so, you know, not that we sort of don't ever mention ourselves in conversation, but... That's a great, it's a great practice to just be aware of when that's coming up and then choose whether this is the right moment to share my experience or to keep asking about theirs. Yeah, or something. There's also kind of that, that deeper level too of, of 
like even just an interaction with my mom and I might want to attach a tone to it. Oh, I see. So saying, hmm, I wonder if she's doing that to tweak me a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Instead of just the, okay, I could just be my filter. Like, I have no idea what anyone else's experience or intention is. We don't actually know other people's intentions. Yeah. We think we do, but it's, yeah. Thank you. All right, so shall we try a guided meditation then? Okay. (laughs) Thank you for the reminder. When I go in. Oh, thank you for lowering the lights. All right, so finding a posture that is upright and also relaxed. Just to plant a seed in your consciousness. I think it's worth saying clearly that Buddhist practice is eventually about letting go of all attachments. If every attachment is causing suffering in some way, and our aim is to end suffering, that would be letting go of all the attachments. So allowing your attention to go inward, feeling the body sitting, Seat against the chair or the bench or the cushion. And the legs or feet against the floor. Just that stable posture being supported by the seat and ultimately the earth. Allowing the body to be at ease with how it is right now. So softening the face. Softening the eyes and the eye sockets. Allowing the thinking muscle to relax. Any tension inside the skull, inviting some release. Softening the shoulders and allowing the shoulder blades to slide down the back. Maybe on the exhale, seeing if 
can release the shoulder joints a little bit. down into the belly area, inviting some release, letting the belly soften, be round, also releasing the back muscles. Letting go of any bracing in the legs. Allowing the attention to rest comfortably in the whole body sensations. Perhaps the sense of the whole body breathing gently in and out. It's okay at this moment. Nothing particular to do. Nowhere to go. No one to be. As we breathe in, not adding any new tension. As we breathe out, perhaps releasing a little bit of tension. Allowing yourself to feel the aliveness of what it's like to be alive at this moment. Maybe there's a sense of the life in the body. A sense of awareness in the mind.
have the ability to hear. Just sitting in this space, in this body, with this mind. In the words of Ajahn Sumedho, right now, it's like this. Noticing any tendency in the mind to want to add something to experience. But there's nothing to add. This moment is complete. Anything extra, see if you can let it go. Could there be even less? Letting the mind get simpler and simpler Anything not needed, just let it drift away. The ease of simplicity.
letting go even of the need to know. Let the experience just come. It will come. You don't need to look for it. from Ajahn Panyavado. The goal is not something we reach by striving to go higher and higher. In truth, the goal is there all the time. What we must do is get rid of the things hiding it from view, not gain something but relinquish everything. Developing the path factors eventually eliminates all attachment. When we let go of everything, the goal, Nibbana, is there. Then nothing is left for us to do. Therefore, Buddhism is not so much a path of gaining as a path of relinquishing. There's nothing to stop you except yourself.
I want to talk a little bit about non-clinging. And this is stated over and over again in the texts. There's a stock phrase that says, that monk, that monk's mind was liberated from the taints by non-clinging. We see it again and again. And this is the, this is really the essence. You know, we say, what is, what is this Nibbana thing or etc. Non-clinging, if there's anything um, that's stated directly as to what the practice is about, it's non-clinging. So whatever is appearing in this moment, if you don't cling to it, you're free. <laughs> the problem is we have met so many things that we cling to moment by moment. Joseph Goldstein has this wonderful phrase, it does not matter to what you do not cling. <laughs> it does not matter to what you do not cling. And this is, um, I can't remember if it's actually from the book One Dharma. I've certainly heard him say that in a Dharma talk. Yeah, but basically he's, he looked around at different wisdom traditions. He was looking at different Buddhist traditions specifically. But he said, there's no tradition that says cling. <laughs> you know, it's like that's just not an instruction that you get. And so this, this idea of non-clinging um, is basically renunciation. Maybe it's, some, it's a little more obscure. It's almost kind of a made-up word. But maybe it sounds better for us than renunciation. I don't know if I can renounce everything. But if all I had to do was not cling to what's happening in this moment, Maybe I could do that. And that's, that's freedom if you do that moment to moment to moment. So we do this again and again. We do our approximation of non-clinging. At any given moment, we might not be letting go of absolutely everything, but at least we can let go of that pattern that we see arising for the umpteenth time, for example. And this is the, the path of practice. Non-clinging eventually leads toward liberation of the mind through non-clinging. So this is from Nyanaponikatera. Daily practice will wear thin the bondage to self and the world, loosen more and more clinging's tight grip, until, like the serpent's worn-out skin, it falls away almost effortlessly just as, according to similes given by the Buddha, the handle of a hatchet is wasted away by constant use, just as the strongest ship ropes will become brittle by constant exposure to wind, sun, and rain, and finally fall asunder, so will constant acts of giving up, of letting go, wear thin and fragile the once so stout and unbreakable fetters of craving and ignorance until one day they drop off completely. By such an act, no violence against nature is done. It is a lawful process of growing, of outgrowing, that which is no longer an object of attachment. So note the term lawful process. There comes a point where effort is superfluous. You know, the snake's skin comes off when the snake 
grows bigger and doesn't need that skin anymore. So awakening is definitely not something that we make happen. It's more like something that we let happen. Isn't that a little humbling to know that you could be awake at this moment, except that something in you is preventing it? (laughs) Yeah, or maybe we are and we just don't realize it. So we return, you know, kind of to the nature imagery, right? I've got the seashell here. (laughs) It's a natural process. I suppose this seashell was discarded by some creature that got too big for it. I know it doesn't always feel like that, and there is certainly a time when making effort is the way, you know, the way we need to practice with actual deliberate effort. But uh, the larger picture is one that we are undergoing a natural process. We're undergoing a, an outgrowing process of outgrowing the things that are binding us. And they fall away like the ship's rigging. I know for me there are things where, you know, one day I noticed that I just didn't have something that I used to have. You know, it's like an, a, an unskillful response or some kind of bondage that I used to kind of struggle with and maybe I had to work on in my practice. And it wasn't necessarily that I had that moment where I felt the bond break asunder and say, yes, I'm free of that, you know. (laughs) But more like, you know, one day it's like that response doesn't arise. And 10 seconds later I realize, oh, where was that? (laughs) I I didn't have that habitual tightening in my chest that I've had for the last 20 years about that topic. And somehow... Somewhere during the night, I don't know, it fell away because I had noticed it enough times and met it with my attention. And then it just, it just wasn't needed anymore. This is the natural wisdom of the heart that grows over time. Um, the process of not indulging our confusion. Remember that first definition of renunciation? Not indulging our confusion whether our confusion comes in the form of wanting, in the form of anxiety, in the form of anger. It's all confusion. And if we don't indulge it, uh, eventually it weakens. The heart can, when the heart chooses the direction of non-suffering enough, that particular suffering is, is finally just sloughed off. You might say, well, I think I've got an infinite number of these things. You don't. <laughs> Um, it may be that our mind stretches back very far into the past. Um, maybe there's no beginning, I don't know, to the mind. But the process of letting go of the attachments, there comes a point where there's enough of them that all the rigging falls away. And so, you know, it's, you may not know that completely, but it's a natural process. You know, it's very, it's not intended to be something where we're, how could it be something where we're going against nature? There's also this sutta called the Chaitana Sutta. Chaitana means intention. Sometimes it's trans- the title is translated as an act of will. 
I won't read the whole thing because it's kind of repetitive, but you'll get the pattern pretty fast. It says, for a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there is no need for an act of will. May freedom from remorse arise in me. It is in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. For a person free from remorse, there is no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. It is in the nature of things that joy arises in a person free from remorse. For a joyful person, there is no need for an act of will. May rapture arise in me. It is in the nature of things that rapture arises in a joyful person. It goes on and on and on, all the way up to... For a dispassionate person, there is no need for an act of will. May I realize the knowledge and vision of release. That's Nibbana. It is in the nature of things that a dispassionate person realizes the knowledge and vision of release. And it concludes, in this way, mental qualities lead on to mental qualities. Mental qualities bring mental qualities to their consummation for the sake of going from the near to the further shore. So it's described as this unfolding, very natural unfolding. We may not have done the whole sequence, but it's true, right? Suppose that, you know, you we all live pretty virtuous lives. I know you all have things that you're worried about, whether it's ethical or not. But basically, um, I would guess that all of us live fairly ethical lives. Is there a need for an act of will? May freedom from remorse arise in me. You know, when you've behaved well, you don't have any remorse. There's no act of will involved. So maybe that one we can get, and then have some faith that the rest is also true. Of course, check for yourself. <laughs> so what about this release, the knowledge and vision of release? Interestingly, in our tradition, not a lot is said about what comes after that. The final result I see is that it's open. Freedom is the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. So when these three have been renounced, what is there? Well, you got to find out. (laughs) As long as there's no greed, hatred, and delusion, there could be other things. It's not nothing. There could be all kinds of other things. When discussed positively, there are a few phrases I picked out. Um, This state is associated with peace, with supreme bliss, and with supreme security from bondage. Those are some of the common positive, uh, not positive like as opposed to negative, but positive like they actually said something about it as opposed to something like non-clinging, which is called negative. So, so that's the process. <laughs> we've looked at the three wise intentions, and we've considered viscerally what they mean for us. You know, that whole time you were sitting, the intention to renounce everything is pretty subtle. And eventually, of course, you have to let go of the intention to let go, right? That's one of the last things that has to go. Um, 
But I hope what stays in some way is that bodily sensation that we felt, the feeling of, of love or of worth, the feeling of, oh, of the openness that you mentioned, of the compassion, the willingness to meet suffering, and of the desire to let go of anything in the mind that's leading toward suffering. Feel how different that is from having a goal or a concrete New Year's resolution, for instance. That visceral feeling. And I would invite, you don't need to focus all your intention on it all the time, um, but why not touch into it? However often it makes sense, weekly, monthly, a few times a year. It's very, very useful to feel in our body those those intentions now and then to just remind us and to keep setting our course. So we don't know what the exact exact result will be, but we know that the path is of non-clinging, of love and of compassion. That's pretty good. That's a path that we can walk in the present moment to great satisfaction. Are there any questions or comments? Anything to feel complete? Yeah. When, you, when you send a follow-up email, could you include that the uh, sutta reading that you included? The Chaitanya Sutta? The About the no act of will? The one that closed the last meditation. Oh, the one that closed the meditation. Okay, that that was from a teacher, actually. Um, right, okay. I'll send that, yeah. That, that was really beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like to read that again. Okay. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.